Hello and welcome to the June 23 review show on Crimetime FM. Another bumper selection today, including, I admit, a few idiosyncratic picks, and maybe a tendency towards noir, but there isn't a bad book here. And I really do try to scope the whole range of the genre. So let's kick off with The Red House by Ros Watkins, a speculative departure from her popular D.I. Meg Dalton series. Celestine is five when the family are murdered at what becomes notorious as The Red House. Her testimony helps pin the crime on her older brother Joseph. The following day, Joseph is badly injured in a crash and left in a coma. As an adult, Celestine has put it all behind her. That is until the auntie responsible for looking after Joseph dies. Though she's wanted nothing to do with him, Celestine is about to inherit her brother's care. She has to make a decision. When they switch off his breathing support, Joseph begins to recover. Will he be able to give his version of what happened that fateful night? Someone out there will do anything to stop that happening. As new evidence emerges, Celestine and Joseph are in real danger. As well as handling the personal and moral issues around life support very sensitively, this is a well-plotted thriller with twists and turns and a protagonist it's easy to empathise with in Celestine. It's a proper beach read. Published in hardback by HQ. And I want to catch up with a book I wasn't able to get into last month's show, End of the Game by Holly Watt. It's the fourth Casey Benedict reporter sleuth thriller. Casey is used to globetrotting and tracking down the big story, but she's currently seconded to the London political desk of the Post. She's enjoying a jolly at Ascot with public affairs guru Nash Bexley when she intervenes to save the life of a man caught in an ambush. Aidan runs a sport betting company, and he uses an algorithm to play the system, but that hardly seems a reason for killing a man. On the other hand, the fact that he's reported match-fixing, well, that affects some powerful people. Casey digs into matters on Aidan's behalf, and is soon in the firing line. The money is more than enough to unleash murderous intent. There are other strands to a pacey, intelligent mystery. Hollywood is the winner of a CWA Steel Dagger for one of her earlier novels in the series. Certainly deserves a bigger readership. Published in hardback by Bloomsbury. A literary murder mystery now, Deadlands, by Nuria Bendigo. Translated from the Catalan by Martha Tennant and Mauruxo Relano. This is a Rashomon-style tale with 13 voices focused around a violent death. John lives in an isolated house with only his family around him. Then one day he's shot in the back. So who pulled the trigger and why? It's all rooted in family, and everyone has a different story to tell. As the past emerges, it's a tale of trauma and anger, and jealousy and selfishness. Murky and sordid wounds and feuds are exposed. It's a deep dive into dysfunctional family and self-justification. Bendico examines what family means and why blood ties exercise power for good and bad over us. Sparsely written, with sharp observations on the sexes, poverty and family, and the nature of evil, it's a dark and poignant tale. Truly original fiction from a minority language, out in paperback from three times Rebel Press. For you if you like literary noir. More mainstream now, with Blackfell by Mary Hanna, the fourth Stone and Oliver mystery. DCI David Stone and DS Frankie Oliver investigate skeletal remains found by tourists in a barrel at Kielder Reservoir. A difficult investigation is complicated by a murder near the crime scene. 
This time it appears to be connected directly to the Icelandic tourists who, who found the first remains, but they've already left for home. While Stones handles the barrel killing, Oliver heads off to Iceland for answers on body number two. Hannah marshals two storylines expertly until the dots start joining. The dark feel of the mystery chimes nicely with the Scandi Noir link. For those who like their crime tough, maybe even a little bleak, this is very realistic and it really is good. A welcome addition to an excellent series. Published by Orion as a paperback original. First Blood by Amelie Northomp. Translated by Alison Anderson is one of my left-field picks, I suppose, but it has the sensibilities and pace of a noirish thriller. It's a lean and beautifully crafted tale based on Amélie's father's life, and it's set in the Republic of the Congo in 1964. At 28, Patrick is about to face a firing squad. As a diplomat, he's the de facto leader of a group of European hostages in the hands of left-wing rebels. While negotiating with the Belgian colonial rulers goes on, we see how Patrick's life brought him to this place. This is a reflection on morality, the death of colonialization and empire, and the emergence of African political consciousness. It's also a very personal tale of a man. Patrick is essentially a decent man on the wrong side of history, something he is aware of, but his story reflects on the ability of humanity to overcome even the most difficult of circumstances. It's a very personal tale. There are no other perspectives in the story but it's a poignant and provocative tale of the evils of colonial rule and a touching personal story. Published by Europa Editions in paperback. So noir and crime aren't exactly the same thing, but they do share sensibilities. My next choice is George Simenon, but not Maigret. This is one of his roman d'oeuvres. The Widow Couderc, translated by Sean Reynolds and originally published in 1942. Jean, just out of prison, is diverted from his journey home to his family when he follows a woman he sees on a bus. This is the widow Couderc, Tati. Tati feeds him and offers him a job. They grow closer, recognizing in each other the loneliness and isolation. But that has dark consequences. Jean becomes embroiled in the family attempt to oust Tati from her home, where she looks after her father-in-law. This is a bleak tale of fear and insecurity and jealousy and greed, an existential abyss. It's a sharp and incisive novel of rural life and of the human condition. Simonon manages to portray the country, the time and place, with fine, delicate brushstrokes. As a roman d'oeuvre, possibly not his best, it is still certainly a much richer read than one of the Maigrets, enjoyable as they are. And Simonon's resentment at not being lauded for these novels when Camus, for instance, with The Stranger written at the same time was, and he was writing about many of the same themes, is certainly at least partially justified. The Widow Kuderk certainly deserves a modern audience. Penguin Classics, published in paperback. Lighter mystery fare now with Silent Waters by L.V. Matthews, her third crime novel. An unusual and intriguing mystery. Jen is a police diver, prone to blackouts, but it's a new height for her when she wakes up, not only to find that she's left her son in the house alone, but that she's come round submerged in a river at five o'clock in the morning. Two days later, her diving services are called on when following up on earlier reports that a missing woman was seen by the river. Need searching. The same stretch Jen found herself waking at. The missing woman is Claudia Franklin, a former Olympic diver. What Jen neglects to tell her colleagues is that she knows Claudia. In fact, the families have history, and the two women nurse a lot of enmity towards one another. 
though supposedly they haven't seen each other for twelve years. Is Jen involved in what happened to Claudia? There's a decent ensemble cast and a twisty mystery that covers love and betrayal here, and that makes for an entertaining claustrophobic story, published by Welbeck in paperback. I was impressed by the noir credentials of my next choice, Evil Intentions Come, by Timothy J. Lockhart. I've enjoyed his past novels, but feel this one is embedded firmly in the best noir traditions. Pete Scarcelli is a low-rent lawyer, scratching a living, when Justine walks into his office. The beautiful wife of a shady businessman, Ben Kingsman, she wants Pete to get her a divorce. Pete falls hard for Justine, and the question arises, if only Ben wasn't around. They cook up a plan to kill him, but it goes horribly wrong. Naturally, when you're in a hole, you keep digging, and Pete's life just got really ugly. The archetypes that make a noir tick are very well done here. It's familiar, but the twists are modern and clever. It's got, of course, the femme fatale, the corruptible lawyer, the innocent stepping in, a vicious bad guy, and plenty of wolves masquerading in sheep's clothing. Naturally, when Pete's offered a way out, he ignores it, and pausing for thought, forget about it. There's no happy ever after, but there is hope of redemption for Pete. Pacey and on point all the way. Published by Starkhouse Press in paperback. A pause for true crime now. I know there's a lot of crossover, and this is a story I was really struck by. It's the account of WPC Yvonne Fletcher's story, told by two men who knew her. No Ordinary Day, by Matt Johnson and John Murray. Yvonne was shot in the back outside the Libyan embassy during a demonstration on the 17th of April 1984. The fatal shot came from inside the Libyan People's Bureau. What followed was a decades-long campaign to get justice for Yvonne. This is a convoluted and shameful story of spying, betrayal, terrorism, corruption, pragmatism and incompetence. This account is personal and reveals the perseverance of Murray to honour a promise to his colleague to bring her killers to justice. The politics span not only Libya, the pariah state and its history, but also the wider political concerns around the world that feed into this story. It's a depressing portrayal of expediency, negligence, cowardice and real politicking. Ultimately, though, this is uplifting because it honours PC Yvonne Fletcher's memory. In my opinion, an important read. Published by Adlib in paperback. And back to fiction. Dawn Farnham's new historical thriller is an unusual mystery set in Japanese-occupied Singapore in 1942. Eurasian inspector Martin Back is kept in post by Japanese boss DCI Kano Hayashi. They're soon plunged into a dangerous case when Eve Abrahams, the widow of a wealthy Jewish businessman, is murdered. Her links to a Japanese official are exposed. And neither the stepdaughter nor her husband got on with the widow very well. Although it's a politically sensitive case, it looks increasingly like it's a very personal killing. Back will have to be very clever to catch a killer who hasn't left much in the way of clues. Okay, it's a pretty standard murder mystery, but it's made much more intriguing by the complex backdrop of occupied Singapore. And Back and Hayashi, in fairness, have a kind of relationship that you can see running for a few novels. So this may be the start of a series. Published by Brash Books in paperback. The Invisible Web by Oliver Bottini, translated by Jamie Bullock. This is the fifth Black Forest investigation for Louise Bonney and it may be the best of a really enjoyable and original Euro-noir series, loaded with darkness and humour. Bottini is a five-time winner of Germany's most prestigious literary prize, 
the Deutsche Krimi Preis. Bonnie is working hard to get her messy personal life on track when she becomes involved in a case with serious political ramifications. This is perhaps the most straightforward investigation, or at least the least bizarre investigation, of the cases that we've come across in the novels, but it has plenty of intrigue to fathom. We're in the territory of spies and industrial espionage in the solar energy sector. When a journalist is badly beaten in the corridor of a Berlin hotel, the woman whose room it happens outside won't cooperate with the investigation. The man in the room next door is nowhere to be seen, he's disappeared. The case leads back to Bonnie's Freiburg domain, but nobody seems to want the chief inspector to make much progress. For Bonnie, a bureaucratic obstacle is a red rag to a bull, so off she goes. It's witty, noirish fare, exquisitely written and translated, with gripping, slightly surreal storytelling. Bottini would be ideal for fans of Fred Vargas. And believe me, ignore anyone who says Germans don't have a sense of humour. Published in hardback by Maclow's Press. Tell Me What I Am by Una Mannion. This is a novel that you won't forget quickly, I can tell you that. Set in the 2000s on the American East Coast, it's a tale that oozes insight and relevance into a troubling issue, violence within the family. Dina Garvey vanished in Philadelphia in 2004. In the years that follow, her daughter Ruby grows up with her father and her paternal grandmother in the country. He teaches her to hunt and be self-sufficient, but Ruby knows never to cross the man. Lucas is mean, and so that means never mentioning her mother. Back in Philadelphia, Dina's sister Nessa is convinced that Lucas is responsible for her disappearance. Now that Ruby is growing up, she wants answers, and Nessa is still searching for the truth too. Lucas has successfully separated Ruby from her aunt, but they're trying to reconnect, each slowly putting together the pieces of their past. It's a haunting, heart-rending read that really conveys the terror of physical and psychological abuse, manipulation, possessive control and ultimately violence. A poignant portrait of grief and domestic abuse, grounded and authentic. A tough but important read, and as I said, it certainly will stay with you, as will Ruby and Nessa. Published by Faber and Faber in paperback. Seishi Yokomiso's The Devil's Flute Murders Translated by Jim Ryan Set in post-World War II Tokyo, 1947, where the ravages of war are still visible, this is the fifth Kozuki Kindayachi mystery that I've read, courtesy of Pushkin Vertigo and their recent English editions. All the plots are fiendishly clever, revealing the best traditions of Golden Age crime, but with a distinctly Japanese feel both in setting and psychological outlook. Once again we have an apparently impossible mystery for the great detective to solve. A complex mystery disturbing secrets and a rising body count all reflect on the local culture and myth. At Tsubaki House, the family are mourning the loss of their elderly patriarch, the Viscount Tsubaki, a crusty old composer flautist who went missing before finally turning up dead. As the family gather, tragedy strikes again and Kindaiachi is called for. This is a dark tale but also humorous. The author's voice punctuates the action brilliantly. It's loosely connected or initiated by a famous poisoning case that shocked Japan at the time, the Tengindo incident, and has appeared in Japanese fiction more than once since this novel. Deliciously entertaining, drawing the reader into the puzzle. A beautiful take on the golden age, in a loving homage, but absolutely, uniquely, Yokomizo's own game. Published by Pushkin Vertigo in paperback. 
I think there are three or four really great books in this selection, but this one really stands out for me. The House on Via Gemito by Domenico Stanoni, translated by Una Stransky. Stanoni is one of Italy's most important literary figures, and I've enjoyed Stanoni's other three novels in English, but this is his magnum opus, a deserved winner of the Strega Prize, Italy's premier literary award. The House on Via Gemito, a Naples street, is a portrait of a small man, small in mind and actions. Federi, perhaps a hero in his own mind, but in reality a bully, an abuser, a petty man, lazy, arrogant, cowardly. A man who holds grudges, particularly over the life he never got to live, taking his failure out on those around him, particularly his failure to become a great artist, and that he assumes is down to his family. In reality, Federi is a railway clerk, and his four boys and his wife, whose background he resents, suffer the brunt of his anger. Late in life he tells his eldest son that he only hit his wife Rosine once, but the son never had any delusions about his father and the neglect and brutality of his upbringing. All his frustrations and disappointments are blamed on the family, almost as if he considers them a millstone around his neck. The son who has spent his life trying not to turn into his father examines the man's life. From 18 when he joined the railway, through the war and into the post-World War II city. It's a remarkable evocation of a city, of working-class life and poverty, but also of the resilience of the human spirit. A poignant interrogation of a small life. It's powerful and it'll create a lasting image in your mind. Obviously it's a portrait of life and family dysfunction, but if you want to talk crime, specifically about domestic violence. Well, one of the things that struck me about it was that domestic noir is often hung up on twists, and the kind of authenticity you get here gets lost by that, and so the survivor's story doesn't matter as much as it should. This is a remarkable portrait of not only time and place, but of a bad man and a good man trying to understand him, published by Europa Editions in paperback. One of the go-to historical crime series has to be Ambrose Parry's Raven and Fisher Edinburgh Mysteries. The latest to be set in the 19th century city of medicine and science is Voices of the Dead, Ambrose Parry is the pairing of Marissa Hartsman and Christopher Brookmeyer. Hartsman is a consultant anaesthetist, and that's particularly relevant for this novel, but generally she brings a knowledge of the history of medicine that is a fascinating aspect of these stories. The sense of place and time, 1853, feels truly authentic. So, the memory of the resurrectionist, Burke and Hare, still haunts the city, as body parts, clearly not specimens, turn up at Surgeon's Hall. Raven has to investigate discreetly before scandal breaks. Meanwhile, Sarah Fisher is anxious to further her medical career, a career barred to women, but then she sees an opportunity in a new experimental field of care. No less than Queen Victoria recently gave birth with the aid of chloroform. This is a highly entertaining mystery with strong empathetic characters. It explores scientific advance and ethics, belief and superstition, Mesmerism and spiritualism are coming Victorian obsession, and issues like women's health and even the city life. It's very pleasing to note that the first novel, The Way of All Flesh, is a going TV project. And if it's done right, that really is something to look forward to. Published by Canongate in hardback. Black River by Nilanjana Roy takes us to contemporary India, a rural backwater outside Delhi. Novels like this and The Age of Vice by Depti Kapoor are I hope a sign that we can expect more literary crime fiction from India. This is a poignant and gripping story 
but is also a comment on religious intolerance, corruption in politics, and issues that affect the rural community particularly, such as poverty and gender. The opening in which a murderer lures a young girl to her death because she's witnessed his previous crime is absolutely devastating. When the father finds his daughter hanging from a Juman tree, an itinerant Muslim man, Mansur, is nearby and swears his innocence. The Hindu citizens of Titapur assume he's guilty. Inspector Singh arrests Mansur. The village want revenge. The father wants to know who killed his eight-year-old Munia. Does the burned-out, overworked, understaffed Inspector Singh have the energy and drive to conduct a proper investigation? Do the people of the village really want to know the truth? Again, this feels so authentic. It's a tough but truly relevant read. At times even beautifully and exquisitely written, but absolutely heartbreaking. A scorching critique of modern India. Published by Pushkin Vertigo in paperback. Two things to finish off. First, I want to give Darren O'Sullivan the opportunity to tell you a little bit about his new novel, The Price. Hello, my name is Darren O'Sullivan and I am the author of The Price, which comes out June 8th this year, published by HQ. The Price is a story about Clara and George. They are both police officers and new parents. And being new parents, they should be the happiest they've ever been. However, they are reeling from the news any parent would dread. Their six-month-old daughter, Tabitha, has cancer. To cope, George throws himself back into his work. His case against a villain named Henry Mantel, who is believed to be a drug dealer and murderer. Mantel is being targeted by those higher up the chain, and if George doesn't stop everyone involved, more people are going to die. And whilst he copes by fighting crime, Clara copes by fighting against her lack of hope. She discovers a treatment that could save her daughter. The catch, it costs a quarter of a million pounds. It's a lot of money, but she has a plan. Mantel needs to help find information of those who are targeting him, and Clara needs money. She's also willing to pay the price, any price, to save her baby. With Clara both being a police officer and now a criminal, she has to hide her secret life from her husband in order to protect the only life that really matters. That does sound like a really interesting moral dilemma that's a spark for a crime novel. And finally, our American friend by Anna Pitoniak. President Henry Kane, not unlike Trump, has turned Washington politics into a circus with his outrageous behaviour, and yet he's been elected for a second term. Journalist Sophie Morse has done her stint as a White House reporter and is about to move on when First Lady Lara Kane convinces her to write her biography. Lara, born Larissa Fyodorovna Orlova in Russia, brought up in Paris, has quite the story to tell, and it's no holes barred on the secrets that this will reveal. It starts with her first love, Alexander Kolansky, who died in Paris in 1985 when 20. Kolansky's magazine, Iskra, like Lenin's paper, The Spark, was critical of Moscow. Sophie becomes attached to Lara, and as she digs into the story, it gets more and more sensitive and damaging for her husband. Sophie is unwittingly at the centre of a political game that will have devastating consequences. Petoniak cleverly masks the true intent of the story, which reflects on the Cold War and on the modern state of politics in the US and relations with Russia. Thought-provoking and thrilling, this is a welcome addition to spy fiction, with strong female protagonists, with an intriguing relationship and an interesting perspective on the past. Published by No Exit Press, in paperback. 
Well, that's a lot of books and a lot of reading. But as I said, I do try to bring you some stuff that, that you might not get on other review shows. And once again, apologies for language mangling. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favorite podcast provider. I'll be back with another review show next month. But in the meantime, of course, there'll be the one-to-one interviews. And of course, Victoria will bring you on the sofa. So for now, bye and thank you very much for listening.